0: Shalom and we are live uh, this week for technical reasons. The Lighthouse Project had to cancel the class. So uh, I am doing this live from Chabar of North Miami studio, the Jewish mind. Um, I'm going to post a handout if you want to print it up. Also in the description, you have all my notes that you can actually read this as well. So um, there you go, the handout is now posted. Okay, today's title is Pass the Salt, Please, Transforming Inedible Experiences into Tasty Experiences. Okay, so uh, I'm just going to jump ahead for a moment and tell you what the Pass the Salt is all about. It's just a direct verse in this week's Torah portion where God um, commands us uh, immediately that uh, we should have salt on every single sacrifice and not leave out um, and not omit from any sacrifice there should be not having salt. It must be salt in every sacrifice. With that being the case, let's jump into what this is all about. So what's the modern day issue? We always start with a modern day issue, then get mystical, then come back to the modern day issue. So the modern day issue is people say that life has its ups and downs. People also say that if God gives you lemon, make lemon juice. And there are so many more sayings which basically allude to life being a package that isn't all good and that accepting life on life's terms means to be able to accept that which is not tasty or even inedible. We need to expect that. That's what so many of these sayings say. Well, dare I say or ask, says who? Why couldn't and why wouldn't a perfect God make Perfect world with a perfect life for each and every one of us. Oh yes, I can already hear how the pessimists are talking to me about tikkun. We have to have correction for our sins um, in this world, uh, this lifetime, and in our past lifetimes. Of course, things can't be all good. We've all sinned somewhere in our life, and thus we all need tikkun. Uh, not so, my dear naysayers. Number uh, one. There is a word in the Genesis, in the beginning about creation, which is missing a letter. The word Toldot over there is missing a vav. And thus we are told that long before anyone sinned or anything, God made purposely the world imperfect. That's number one. And number two, our sages tell us that the soul did not descend into this world for its own tikkun. Rather... It is always to accomplish a mission for God in the physical realm of the universe. So this isn't ultimately about my soul, your soul, and thus it's not about tikkun. So why? Why did a perfect God have to make such an imperfect world together with such imperfect lives for each and every one of us? That's the question. So now, obviously what we're saying is That God, who is perfect, chooses to that imperfection and even inedible imperfection is the perfect ways of God. Why? Okay, this lecture is based on a mimer, a teaching of the Rebbe Blessed Memory, delivered in 1965, exploring the commandment not to omit putting salt on any sacrifice. Together with that, the Rebbe explores the Purim story of Haman versus Mordechai and a specific law of Purim, which is, and we'll we'll, read, we'll we'll get into this a little more, a person is obligated to become intoxicated on Purim until he does not know between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. That comes straight from the Talmud, Tractic Megillah, which is all about the laws of Purim. What is that all about? Okay, so let's first get into the introduction. So we're going to, so the modern day issue is why? Why does a perfect God have to make such imperfect world and have each of us deal with such imperfect lives? And not by our own Be by our own doing, but by God's design. Why? Okay, so the introduction. The nature of salt is that it in itself is inedible. However, it makes meat edible. Mystically speaking, what does that mean? Let's jump straight into the mysticism. Mystically speaking, the revealed Torah, such as the Talmud and the laws, that is the inedible meat. We'll soon see. Meaning that we do not understand and appreciate the reasons and higher accomplishments of what we are learning and of the commandments. It's hidden. Therefore, we don't really feel feelings when we do things that we don't understand however the hidden Torah such as Kabbalah and Hasidic while esoteric is the salt that makes the meat edible by bringing us reasons and understandings which allows us to get emotionally evolved with the commandments and the revealed Torah so thanks to the salt i.e. the hidden Torah Kabbalah and Hasidus suddenly the meat becomes so much more edible and so much more tasty that we don't have to just do it with an obedience, but we can also have the gift on top of obedience to be able to understand, appreciate, and thus do with love and with awe. However, to understand this, we will first have to explore the difference between a parable and a riddle. Interesting, a parable and a riddle. A parable is something that makes sense in its own right. I tell you a story, and this is a parable. You know, Hasidim love doing that. They always tell stories, and from the stories, you learn out the moral of the story. However, because the parable in itself makes sense, very often someone will be completely oblivious that the story isn't the point. It's the moral of the story that's the point. However, on the other hand, you have then the riddle. The riddle in itself tells me that it's not about the riddle. It's about the solution to the riddle. Thus, on one hand, the riddle is so much more difficult to figure out than it is to figure out the moral of a parable. But in the same token, the riddle drives you that you have nothing unless you understand the answer to the riddle. That's the only purpose of the riddle. While the parable, one can just say, "Mm, that's a nice story and not understand that it's not about the story. Okay, so thus, let me take you to a verse that David, when he was running away from King Saul, said to King Saul, and this is from the book of Samuels. As says the primordial parable, one from the wicked comes forth wickedness, and my hand shall not be upon you. The rest of the verse is not what I want to focus on right now. You can look it up in the book of uh, Samuel Shmuel, Samuel um, uh, chapter 24, verse 13. What I want to share with you is primordial parable. What is that? So our sages tell us that that refers to the Torah. Why is the Torah a primordial parable? And the answer is because the entire Torah is a parable for the primordial one, God, and the wisdom of God. Thus, in essence, really, the entire Torah is nothing more than a mashal, a parable, and it's all about God and God's wisdom. However, when we study the Torah and we start learning the laws, the civil laws, and the laws of real estate, and the laws of all the methodology of how you get from the verse to all the details of the law, Just like a parable, we can never pay attention to the moral of the parable because the parable in itself is so rich, so wise, so wonderful. It's got a whole set of rules and thus the Torah in itself separated, void of me seeing the divinity and God and God's wisdom in it, in itself is a masterpiece and thus I can spend my entire life living only in the parable of the Torah, without seeing that the Torah is really all about a bridge and a connection for me to be able to digest and connect with God and with the wisdom of God. That's why the revealed Torah is considered the meat. However, when we come to the hidden Torah, which talks directly about God and God's relationship to the world, even though it's so much more difficult to really understand, and we really only truly digest and understand the tip of the iceberg, a nothing of a something. But whatever we do understand, we know that this is not about some masterpiece in its own right. We know that the Torah is not an end in its own. It's a means to an end, which is our connection and our intellectual connection, our emotional connection, and our action connection with God and God's wisdom. Thus, when Hasidus teaches us, when the hidden Torah teaches us the secrets of what really is behind each commandment, and what is the deeper spiritual message behind every teaching of the Torah, of the Talmud, of the Medrash. Thus, it's the salt that makes the meat, which in its own right, we may think that the Talmud is an end in its own and not a means to an end. Or if we're doing the mitzvah is an end in its own and not a means to an end. We totally can forget that this is all about God. Thus, the Hasidus, the hidden Torah, is the salt that goes on to the meat, the Talmud, which makes it truly tasty. And now I'm not just eating tasteless food, i.e. obedience, but rather it's rich in taste, love, awe. What an emotional connection with my God, with my Torah, with my people, and with my land. That is what is the deeper secret of what it means when the Torah says that there must be salt on the sacrifice. It means that we have to have the salt, the hidden Torah, to keep on reminding us and imbuing the revealed Torah that it's only a means to an end because it's really all about the noten ha-Torah, God and God's wisdom. Okay. With that being said, we have another introduction to, uh, to understand. What exactly is that law? to be intoxicated on Purim to the point where we don't know the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai. By the way, not only is this Dvar Torah, this law, so powerful, it is the only law which dominates the entire 24 hours of Purim. Reading the Megillah, you do once at night, once in the morning. Having the meal, you do once during the day going ahead and giving shalach the food baskets, you do it and you did the mitzvah. Giving money to the poor, you do it and you did the mitzvah. The law of being intoxicated to the point of not knowing the difference between Haman, cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai, is the ultimate commandment of Purim to the point where it dominates every moment of Purim. What's going on there? Okay, so I will share with you. Let's turn to the handout, and I'll show you that some people say that it's really about, practically speaking, it's about numerology. So I'm going to show you here that if you look at the Hebrew words, and again, I put this in the link so you can download it, but if you look at the words, Arur Haman, Cursed Haman, you're going to see that each letter has a numerical value. When you add up the numerical value, it equals 502. So, too, when you look at the words, Baruch, Mordechai, Blessed Be Mordechai, you will see that if you add up the numerology of all the numbers, you will equal 502. Thus, there are those that say you should be intoxicated to the point where you really can't figure out the math. That's a little hard to understand, but it gets even more interesting. If the numerology is the same, and that's why I'm understanding that there is no difference. What is the difference? What really lies behind all of this? So here's an interesting teaching in the mystical aspect of the of the. Um, I'm sorry, in the mystical aspect of what this commandment really means. So according to Kabbalah, and according to Chassidus numerology is not just a uh, whatever, let's just make up some numbers and ooh, ah, wow, it's so amazing. No, that's not what it's about. What it's really all about is it's telling us that there is a deeper connection between the two and thus, biblically speaking, we are taught that they have the same numerical value. Now, if that be said, That means that Mordechai and and Haman, the cursed be Haman and the blessed be Mordechai have something in common even before the law tells us we shouldn't know the difference. So what's the law telling us we shouldn't know the difference? The law is telling us we shouldn't know the difference because they're obviously opposites. Cursed be Haman is on this side of the ring and blessed be Mordechai is on the polar opposite side of the ring. And now we're telling you you shouldn't know the difference. And then we're saying, what does the law mean? That deeply you shouldn't know the difference because the numerology is the same, which means ultimately they are the same. What? How can cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai have the same numerology, which tells us that they're the same? So, to understand this, the wording of until one does not know is ad deloy yoda. Ad, until, deloy, that not. Yoda knows in Kabbalah and Hasidis, and also quoted by Maimonides in the opening laws, there's a concept of Yale al Hadat. Yale al Hadat means that we transcend beyond logic. Thus, what it really means is that Purim, we have to be able to reach that connection we have with God and with the Torah, which is beyond it transcends the logic and thus even though logically one cannot tolerate that cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai is one and the same there is no difference however when we transcend beyond logic we'll see that there's no problem in deeply accepting that cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai is one and the same how so And the answer is, in one line, and then we're going to explain it, the entire existence of cursed behemoth is only that it be transformed into blessed be Mordechai. In the world of Kabbalah and Hasidus, we're into transformation, not annihilation. And thus, what we're looking for is to transform cursed behemoth into blessed be Mordechai. And the fact that I can Transform cursed beheman into blessed be Mordechai tells me that on the deepest level, as we will see soon, they are truly one and the same. And thus their numerical value the, sorry, the numerical value of both hints to us that. Dig deeper, and you'll see they're both the same because cursed beheman exists only for the transformation into blessed be Mordechai. And now let the lecture begin. Okay. So, as always, I'm going to give you a list. Is four different Kabbalistic concepts, mystical concepts that we're going to explore. And through that, everything will make sense. And we'll come back to the practical issue of how and why are there inedible experiences, painful experiences, negative experiences in our life. And how do we make them not just edible, but actually tasty. Okay? So, here is the list. Number one, what is the life force of payment? We'll explain that question and the answer. Number two, the will and the master of the will. Number four, what was God's covenant with the salt? The verse says that the reason we have to always put salt on every sacrifice, which by the way, parenthetically speaking, that's the reason why we dip our challah, our bread into salt when we make hamotzi till this very day. Our table is our altar, our bread is our sacrifice, and we dip it into salt. With that being said, What is the reason that we can't omit the salt from any sacrifice? It says because of God's covenant with the salt. What covenant did God make with the salt? And then lastly, the cherished sinner. Well, okay, let's go right into it. Let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So what is the life force of Haman? Okay, why is that even a question? The question is that God is the only life force that exists. God is good. God is pure. So how can God be a life force for that which is dark, impure, and evil? That is the question over here. Now, to understand this, this question is about every evil person. You know, our our enemy in Iran. But today we're talking about the old enemy in Persia, which is Haman. Because it's the Shabbat before Purim. Thus, The question is, how can Haman be alive? How can you have a good, perfect life force of light, which comes from the good and perfect and light God into the dark and evil and impure Haman? And to understand this, we're going to take you to a verse of King Solomon in Ecclesiastics. And he says here as follows. And I saw that wisdom has an advantage from folly as the advantage of light from darkness. Now, the fact that he doesn't say that there's an advantage of wisdom over folly, al in Hebrew, or light over darkness, but rather he says from the suffix, I'm sorry, the prefix mem. From. Kabbalistically speaking, there's something deep here. King David is not telling us that wisdom is better than folly. And he's not telling us that light, i.e. goodness and purity is better than darkness. We didn't need the wisdom of King Solomon to tell us this. But rather he's telling us something. There is no greater light than the light that comes from darkness. That means darkness itself when transformed into light, and we'll soon see we're talking about the godly spark within the darkness. That is the greatest light. It's even greater than the light which was always light. And so too with wisdom and folly. So now we're going to understand that the deeper meaning of not knowing the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai is talking about for the source of cursed be Haman is its transformation into blessed be Mordechai. The greater blessing and holiness that comes from the deepest darkness and impurity. Now we understand that the entire life force of Haman is that ultimately within this deep darkness of evil and impurity, there is a godly spark of lightness which has actually at this point become dark, imprisoned. But we can, and we'll soon see how, we can transform that that it will be even a greater light than the blessed be Mordechai that always existed and never was an evil Haman. Thus, when we take that godly spark, that godly life force of Haman, the cursed be Haman, and we transform it into its true source, and the only reason that it has us life force from God of goodness and purity and, and light is because We have the mission to transform the cursed be Haman into the blessed be Mordechai. Now let's look at that law. The intoxication until not knowing we now realize doesn't just speak of uh, alcohol and substance abuse, God forbid. But it's talking about to find within us that irrational, transcending, beyond logic, oneness with God. Seeing that beyond what the physical eyes see. We see that God is everything and everything is God. How can God be Haman and Haman be God? And the answer is because we see the numerology. We see that the numerology of cursed be Haman is really, blessed be Mordechai. And why is it so? Because the entire life force of cursed be Haman is its potential that will be actualized by you and I into becoming, blessed be Mordechai. So much so, that the law is telling us we should be intoxicated, that the minute we see, intoxicated means beyond rationale, that we should be so beyond the logic of what my eyes see, that when I look at Cursed Behemoth, I don't even see Cursed Behemoth. Because in my eyes, it has become transparent to the blessed bimordechai which lies within it waiting to be actualized and transformed that's the depth of what the real mitzvah is to be intoxicated to the point of not knowing beyond logic beyond my comfort zone beyond what i see and what i egotistically understand to be right left good bad light darkness and rather To be able to see the depths of the numerology, to understand that the only existence of cursed be Haman is the blessed be Mordecai, which is waiting for us to make happen. Okay, Now, now we can understand God's perfect plan. You see, God's perfect plan is that there's imperfection. What is the definition of imperfection? that is not only good, but is also evil. There's not only purity, but there's impurity. There's not only light, but there's darkness. Now we understand why. Because the ultimate perfection, the greatest depth of light, as King Solomon said, is when it comes from the imperfection. The perfection that was always perfect is not the ultimate greatness of perfection of God. But the imperfection which carries within it a beyond norm perfection, the evil that carries within it the beyond norm, goodness and light, that is the ultimate perfection. And that's what it's saying. And that's why we're told that we have to go ahead and transform the cursed behemoth which is the inedible, into The blessed be Mordecai, which is practically delicious. Now let's go back to understand a deeper commandment that the verse says. And you shall salt every one of your meal offerings, sacrifices with salt, and you shall not omit the salt of your God's covenant from being placed upon your meal offerings. You shall offer salt on all your sacrifices. Why? because salt is the power of transform to transform transformation there is the potential opaqueness of the revealed torah i can get caught up in the revealed torah as an ends and not as a means to an ends thus we can have the primordial parable where the parable is actually opaque conceals and denies us to be able to see that it's all about the primordial. It's all about God. It's all about God's wisdom. It's all about our connection with God. Thus you have the salt, which is the hidden Torah, the Kabbalah and the Hasidah, which makes it undeniable that everything we learn in the Talmud, every mitzvah we do, everything, is all but a means to an end. And the end is to please God, to serve God, to be connected to God, to become one with God. Thus my mind, the literal, the literal synapses that takes place in my mind becomes in the pattern of God's will for we are studying Torah. Thus, on another level, the salt, its job is to transform the meat now let's look at it as the meat is the cursed Behemoth. The salt is the power to bring out the, numero- the numerology of blessed be Mordechai within the cursed Behemoth and transform the cursed Behemoth the most inedible experience into something practically delicious. Blessed be Mordechai. This is the mystical secret of the covenant of your God concerning salt, as we will soon see. Now the question is, how does a finite, imperfect human transform the cursed behemoth into the blessed be Mordechai, being that the way this cursed behemoth descends into this world is as the persecuting, powerful cursed behemoth. It's, it's beautiful to be able to know and actually see that God is everything and everything is God. Thus, ultimately, within evil, there is the God. And the whole reason evil exists is for me to be able to experience the wise wisdom that King Solomon said for the advantage of light that comes from darkness. That's all beautiful. But the bottom line is, what I'm facing is darkness. What I'm seeing is the cursed behemoth. How am little I to be able to change something so powerfully evil, to understand this, we will have to first understand a teaching of our sages in the Talmud Tractic Brachas, page thirty-four b. Also brought down in by Maimonides in his code of law on the laws of teshuvah. What does it say? Rabbah Abahu said, "In the place where penitents stand, even the full-fledged righteous cannot." Stand. We're not just talking about that he doesn't, we're saying he can't. There's something about the Baal Teshuvah that we're saying that the makam Shehu Omed, even the tzadigamur, the full fledged righteous person, the absolute purity and righteousness and light and goodness cannot stand. Why? Okay, let's see why. So, the reason explained is because the soul comes down to this world for a mission that God wants us to accomplish specifically in the physical world. Not where we were before in paradise, praying, studying, praying, staying one with God. No, He wants us to come down into this world and do something for Him. And what is that something? In Kabbalah we talk about elevating God's sparks. There's God's spark within everything. It's trapped within everything. And when we do something with it, we can elevate it. That's what King Solomon was talking about. The mission is that there's greater light than light, even the light of paradise. There's greater light than that in this physical world. If we can transform and elevate the godly sparks that fell down here and are trapped in the physical. Now, the righteous people they can only elevate the mundane. Even the full-fledged righteous person, he can only elevate the godly sparks of the mundane. Now, let me explain what that means, okay? Mundane means it's not evil. It's not forbidden. So, for example, when a full-fledged righteous person has a Shabbat meal, that meat that's being ed, ate, eaten, la. That meat that's being eaten is actually now becoming a part of a mitzvah. A service to God. It's a mitzvah to eat on Shabbat. You make a blessing before it, you make a grace after meal. After that, another part of the mitzvah. The energy that the full-fledged righteous person receives from anything he eats, what does he use it for? The service of God. And thus what was once just a mundane cow, has now become the object of total service of God. But the righteous can never do that with the godly spark that has fallen down into the forbidden. Because actually, there are 365 prohibitions that tells us, back off. You can't touch that spark. The mere fact that the pig exists tells me that there's a godly spark in it. If not, it wouldn't have exist. However, the Torah tells me you can't eat pork because pork is not mundane, it is fallen into impurity. Why is that for now? It's just the Torah is telling us that. And therefore, you can't make a blessing on pig, you can't use it for your Shabbos meal, you can't use the energy to serve God because ultimately speaking, it's tied down. Thus, the righteous who work or walk only in the way of God will never come in contact. With pork. Thus he can never elevate that spark. He can only elevate the sparks that lie within the mundane. This penitent, this baltishuva he's doing exactly that. He's doing exactly precisely what the righteous can't do. Because the balteshuva in the past, let's just say for example, he did eat pork and that pork became like everything we eat our flesh and blood and now that he's doing teshuvah, that flesh and blood which was made of pork is now part of a jew who is serving god in all his ways thus he's accomplishing what the tzaddik can't accomplish he's dealing not just with the sparks that fell into the mundane he's dealing with the sparks that fell into ultimate darkness and thus when he transforms those sparks where is he he's at a place of which king solomon said the advantage of light that comes from darkness which is far greater than the light which comes from the mundane not from the dark thus where the balteshuva stands even the full-fledged righteous tzadik gamur cannot stand now let's take it further and why so The answer is because the Torah is the defined will of God. This is what he wants, and this is what he doesn't want. This is what obligatory, this is permissible, and this is prohibited. Now, in that world of the will of God, impure is impure, pure is pure, and the two cannot change. There's nothing according to the Torah that you can do to make pig kosher. Thus, the tzaddik who lives in the will of God is confined to the definition of the will. Evil is evil, good is good. And why is it so? Because the righteous person himself has an emotional attachment to what he does. His love for God drives him. Now, if it's his love for God that drives him, so even though a full-fledged righteous person is not, not narcissistic and not arrogant and not egocentric, but there is an identity. The identity of the capacity of his love for God that drives him to do mitzvot. Let's talk about the balteshuva, the penitent the penitent is broken when he realizes how disconnected he is from god and what have i done to myself and where have i dragged my soul into and how far have i gone so when he does teshuva he's not talking to the will of god there's nothing that the will of god can do for him the will of god says i'm sorry you did what you did and i am stuck in reacting to that what's wrong is wrong and i can't make it right just because you regret it Therefore, it's, uh, the Baal has to reach into the master of the will. The Baal has to go and tell God, it's not going to work with your Torah. So I have to talk directly to you so that I can change from who I was into a Torah-loving person. Now, when you deal with the master of the will, to the master of the will, there is no predefined, oh, an avera, a sin, will always be a sin. A mitzvah will always be a mitzvah and there's nothing you can do to have a sin turn into a mitzvah. Thus we have another teaching which is unbelievable. The Talmud tells us that the Baal Teshuvah is on such a level, it's the Reshlokish, he says, Rashlakish says, great is repentance as one's intentional sins are counted for him as merits. Wow. It doesn't say that unintentional sins will be forgiven it doesn't say unintentional sins will become merits it doesn't say that intentional merit intentional sins will now be considered as in unintentional sins because we he now we now see that he realizes that he, he does not know what he did when he did it no it says unintentional sins will become merits. how is that possible It's possible because in the master of the will, before we have anything that's defined as good and evil and stuck in their definitions, in the master of the will, it's all about having a oneness to God. And if the fact that this person ate pork now makes him feel, oh my God, I've got to return and get closer to God, then in an interesting way, that pork served as an impetus for this man returning to God. Thus, from the will, there's nothing we can do. Pork is pork. But from the master of the will's perspective, the godly spark within that pork, which brought this Jew to come back to do teshuva for all the stuff that he ate and did and said all his life, up to present, that godly spark, which once was, it it in itself became part of the whole evil, non-kosher impurity became vile, now becomes transformed. Because from the perspective of the master of the will, nothing is stuck as it is. And thus we have the mystical understanding of an amazing story that happened in the Talmud. I'll just quote you what the father said to the daughter. He who commanded that oil to burn can also command the vinegar to burn. What that's going to mean to us is he who commanded that when you eat kosher, do mitzvahs is going to connect you to me is now can say that you who ate pork, whoever it is, that person who ate pork and now fully regrets it and understands and it wants to do teshuvah and connects with the master of the will with total, total humility and abnegation of any ego and identity of self. Please, father, I've made a mistake. Please let me come back and that's driven by a bitterness and a remorse from the pork he ate. Thus in the master of the will, that godly spark of blessed be Mordechai that brings the Jew to do Teshuvah within the pig, that now can have that the cursed be Haman becomes blessed be Mordechai. And thus while the pig is the pig, it's done. But the godly spark within the pig the light from the darkness only the Baal can rise up and thus we're now understanding something far greater that the salt really refers to the penitent because what the full righteous person can do is you can only take kosher food and make it into a mitzvah food however the Baal Teshuvah is given the ultimate covenant that God made with salt to take cursed Behemoth and to connect with that godly spark the blessed be Mordechai within it to free it to elevate it and to transform it to the greatest light which comes from darkness okay we were talking about this covenant with God right what is this covenant with God so we're going to get a little bit mystical here, and I believe that you'll enjoy this. It's very interesting. The verse uses the specific term, name of God, Elohim. It's really E-L-O-H-I-M, but we don't say it, so I replace the H with a K. Now, the name Elohim is different than the name, the ineffable tetragrammaton of the Yud, the Hey, the and the Hey, pronounced as A-D-O-N-A-I. Because Elohim represents justice, represents concealment, it represents strictness. While the the ineffable tetragrammaton name of God represents chesed, kindness, revelation. Why would God make a covenant with the salt, which is all about revelation, from the name Elohim, rather than from the name A-D-O-N-A-O-I. So here's the interesting answer. Turn to the handout if you printed it up. And if not, just look over here. You're going to look at B. There is an interesting teaching in Kabbalah. A two-letter word can make two combinations. A three-letter word can make six combinations, and you see it there, Aleph, Beis, Gimel, Aleph, Gimel, Beis, Beis, Aleph, Gimel, Beis, Gimel, Aleph, Gimel, Beis, Aleph, Gimel, Aleph, Beis. Now, Elohim has five letters, which we now see the bottom line I wrote for you there, can make 120 combinations. Okay? So what? Uh Aha. The, 20, the 120 combinations of Elohim is the life force in the holy world. However, from there, because only from concealment and strictness can eventually become a very, very weak and finite life force of God to even be able to give to the evil life force, thus when that 120 descends into the lower realm and where there is a majority of evil. So now we're talking about the 120 combinations of the name of Elohim, of the mundane, which from there can actually fall into evil. Thus, now look at the next one. I see I made a typo there. I said B again instead of C. Thus, you're gonna see a very interesting numerology. 120 and 120 equals 240. The word bitter, mar, Memreish equals 240. And so is the name Amalek. The Amaleks, equals 240. Now let me just tell you an interesting little fact. The fact is that in the Megillah, in the book of Esther, we refer to Haman as Haman Haagagi. Haman the Agagite. What Agagite? So if you look in the book of Samuels, you'll see that the king of Amalek in the times of King Saul and Shmuel the prophet was Agag, Melech Amalek. Thus we're saying that Haman is the offspring of, biologically, offspring of, ha- of Amalek. That's the reason why the Shabbat before Purim, which is this Shabbat, we take our two Torahs, and in the second Torah, we actually read Parshat Zachar. And what does it say in Parshat Zachar? It says over there, the verse, and I'll read it to you. You shall remember what Amalek did to you. And then it goes on to finish. You shall obliterate the remembrance of Amalek from beneath the heavens. You shall not forget. Thus, we're now seeing that God purposely used the name Elohim in his covenant with salt. We're now understanding that Elohim is the source of eventually becoming 240, which is bitter which eventually can even go lower and become Amalek 2.40. Thus God says, this is the name I'm going to make the covenant with salt because salt is all about transforming the bitter, the Amalek. Amalek is all about, I'm sorry, the covenant with the salt is all about to be able to reach deeper into the numerology of Cursed Be Haman, the offspring of Amalek, and to realize even there, there is that, there is that power, potential, godly spark of Blessed Be Mordechai, and the only reason Cursed Be Haman exists is so that we can transform it and have the greater light from darkness. This is the covenant of salt. The covenant of salt in our practical lives is the power of Teshuvah, The power of saying my past does not define my present and my future. I can today become one with God. I can today connect with the ways of life of the Torah and of the mitzvot. And when I do this, I've reached into the master of the will. When I reach into the master of the will, I have the covenant of salt that my past intentional sins become merits. The cursed behemoth becomes the very blessed be Mordechai. There's one more point to cover and then we'll close it up. The cherished sinner. So very often we find that on the, it's, it's often and especially a leap year, we find in a leap year, we find that we read the Shabbat before Purim, the portion of Vayikra, the beginning of the the first portion of the book of Leviticus. Why? So here's something now that we can understand from all this mystical stuff we're talking about that within cursed behemoth there is the blessed be Mordechai. The entire existence of cursed behemoth is only for the sake of transforming it into blessed be Mordechai. And that is the secret of the salt which transforms the meat into being edible and tasty and a greater light that comes from darkness. Now let's give a look at what the secret of Pasha VaYikra is. So if you look into the first verse of VaYikra. The first word is Vayikra El Moshe. God, doesn't even say the name of God because we're talking about the essence as we'll soon see. The essence of God is calling unto Moses and then goes on to give the laws of the sacrifices, the commandments. Now, if you look inside the Torah, you don't find that. It doesn't say Vayikra. It usually says Va'yedaber, and God spoke to Moses. Vayomer and God said to Moses. Va'yitzav, and God commanded Moses. Why the word Vayikra? He called him. So let's look into Rashi, the commentator from France in the 11th century. And he says as follows. Every time God communicated with Moses, whether it was represented by the expression of Vayedaber, and he spoke, or Vayomer, and he said, or Vayitzav and he commanded, it was always preceded by God calling to Moses by name, Vayikra. By that means this Vayikra becomes what we call a Av. It doesn't just talk about this instance. It tells us what happened in every instance. Just the Torah is not going to keep on repeating it because it wants to be short. Now, what is the secret of Vayikra? Kriya is an expression of affection. Thus, God's not just doing business with us. Okay, let's just a business relationship here. No, it's always Vayikra. God has an unbelievable affection for each and every one of us. And that's the name of this entire Torah portion. That means the entire Torah portion is one expression of God's affection to us. How cherished we are to God. Well, we always say that the ending of something is where the umph is. But let's look at the ending of this Torah portion. The ending of this Torah portion is the laws. Let me read to you. If a person sins, whoa, what's so cherished about that? And what? Look at the last words of the Torah portion. The Ashama Bo, guilt through it. How can this be a situation in which we're cherished by God, in a state of guilt, in a state of sin? Now we can understand. What is the source of guilt through it? What is the source of the cursed and experiences in life? It's a different verse. The verse that says, Thus the Kohen shall make atonement for his sin that he committed in every in any one of these cases, and he shall be forgiven. The relationship that happens after there was an issue and forgiven is so much more cherished. Thus the life force of the guilt, the life force of the sin, is that we should do teshuva and be forgiven. Once again, the life force of cursed be Haman is blessed be Mordechai. What's even greater than that is, this is the closing of the Torah portion. Because the fact that the righteous, or when we do good things, are cherished by God, of course. Of course, he's a goody-goody. But the mere fact that we could sin, and God allows us to repent and do teshuvah for the sin, To the point where the sinner is not always, oh my God, he sinned. Remember he sinned 10 years ago? He's always going to be down there. No. He rises to a plateau in which even the righteous can't reach. It's the light from darkness. The fact that we can experience that, that is the ultimate proof of experience of how cherished we are for God. The deep perfection comes from imperfection. The greatest light that comes from darkness that's the Torah portion that wants to tell us how cherished we are to God finishes with precisely that the cherished sinner for the spark within every Jew the with within every Jew who sinned even who sinned is all to be forgiven and one with God at a plateau of the greatest light that comes from darkness and now let's close it up I'll close it up in just a couple sentences so we want to know why. Why does a perfect God make such imperfect life, such an imperfect universe? Why? Why do we have such not just inedible experiences in our life? And every experience we have is a direct communication from God to us. Why? So let me say it this way. In closing, let us now return to our opening modern-day issue. When God gives us lemons, we must go far beyond just making lemon juice. We need to see the advantage of light from darkness. We are to engage with the power of the salt, the power of transformation, and the power of being cherished by God. The outcome will be the depths of sweetness that comes from bitterness. Thank you.